If you've, got a, if you've got a Bible with you, you could turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 5. What we've been doing uh, over the last few months is working our way slowly but surely, systematically, uh, through this book together. And what we've been seeing is that the theme of the whole book is pretty much what James says in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's like, unless we apply our faith, James would say, is useless. He says, a lot of us believe a whole lot of stuff about a whole range of different things, but if we never do anything as a result of what we believe, as a result of the faith that we have, it's pretty much a waste of time. James says that faith that's not worked out in everyday life is worthless, is as good as dead. And so to help us out, he tackles through this book a whole range of practical day-to-day issues and tries to show us how our belief in God, our faith in God, has got to touch on and affect and impact all of these practical areas of life. Now in today's passage, James turns attention onto all the rich people. Quick show of hands. Do we have any rich people here today? Uh, We have one or two. Um, Funny, isn't it? Very few of us think we're rich. So, obviously rich, but he's had it because he is rich. Um, Apart from that, we have one other person. Uh, So, uh, I guess this talk is going to be a little bit of an odd one because it doesn't really apply to any of us. Uh, Just to warn you at the beginning, this talk is going to be absolutely, utterly irrelevant for you. What's more, the passage we're going to be looking at is also pretty offensive. I think if I stood up to speak and introduce this sermon, this talk, the way that James introduces this passage... I think most of you probably would end up very offended. You'd certainly be embarrassed if this was the Sunday you had finally invited one of your friends along and they were sitting next to you and I launched out as James does here. And if you're visiting the church for the first time and you heard me talking like this, you would probably never come back again. Just have a listen to what James says. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not even opposing you. You kind of wonder, what's got into James here? I don't know, maybe he's getting towards the end of the book and maybe he's just a bit tired or maybe he's grumpy or maybe he just can't be bothered trying to dress it up nicely anymore. He, he just kind of fires it out of the straight. Now, before we try and unpack what exactly he's saying here, I just want to return to the assumption that a lot of us have made that we're not rich. You see... I care for you deeply, and I want to serve you 
as best I can. So I've been doing a little bit of research just to help us out. I found on the internet this week, you can always trust what you see on the internet. I found on the internet, so this is true, the current annual average wage here in the UK is £25,428. Now, I know a lot of people here today are students, uh, so maybe that seems like a colossal sum of money to you. But if you are here today and you earn more than £25,428, you probably fall into the rich category. Now, for some of you, that is quite some revelation. Some of you, you came to this meeting thinking you were poor, and you are going to go home rich. I tell you, that discovery was worth dragging yourself out of bed for. I mean, that's worth celebrating, is it? You didn't realize it, but you are rich. What's more, 10% of workers here in the UK earn more than £50,492 per year. So, if at the moment, or one day, you end up earning more than that, then you are the super rich. I mean, 90% of people here in the UK earn less than you do. Now, some of you will be sitting there quite smug saying, well, I knew I wasn't rich and this proves it. That's just the UK scene. If you take this thing and you stretch it out all across the world, if we look at this on an international scale, there probably isn't a person in this room who wouldn't be classified as rich. For example, the average annual income in India, where Sydney comes from, is £374.10 per year. Unfortunately, then, while I'd like to think that we could all dodge the bullet on this one this morning, the truth is, when James addresses the rich people, by UK standards, a number of us in this room are rich, And by international standards, all of us are rich. So this is a passage for all the rich people, and probably that includes you. So let's look more closely at what James has to say here and try and work out exactly how it does apply to us. Verse 1, this is what he says. Now listen, you rich people, probably includes all of us, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming Upon you. Now, straight away, James dives in and starts challenging our assumptions. We think that as rich people look into the future, they're secure. They have no worries at all. And James says, wrong assumption. He says, there is something in your future that you have overlooked. As much as you have planned for the future, there is something you forgot to plan for. He says, there's something that's coming your way, all you rich people, and because you haven't planned for it, the wealth that has become a source of security for you is going to end up becoming a source of great embarrassment for you. The wealth that you have happily taken comfort in is going to be a source of pain to you. There's coming a day when you're going to wish perhaps you weren't so rich after all. Now, that's so at odds with how people think today. It was also completely at odds with how people thought back in James's day. And so James goes on to try and explain to us what he means by this. 
Verse 2. He says, Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. He says, Let me tell you why you need to weep and wail. You have so much stuff, you don't even know what to do with it. You can't even use it. It's like you have clothes in your wardrobe you don't even wear. He says, the reason moths have eaten your clothes is because they've been left hanging in your wardrobe unused for so long. What's more? He says, you've got so much money lying around, it's beginning to corrode. It's been left lying around unused for so long that corrosion has set in. You know what the truth is? I've got to admit, I'm guilty of this. Most of us in this room today probably have a bad case of just-in-case-itis, don't we? I mean, we hoard stuff. I hoard stuff. Yesterday, for the first time ever, just moved house, loads of stuff to kind of sort out. Um, I, I went to a car boot sale to try and get rid of some of the stuff that I've hoarded over the years. And public confession time, it was painful for me. Helen wanted me, and I'm a a faithful husband, she wanted me to sell all this stuff. I wanted to just keep hold of it, just in case. I mean, the thing that caused most pain, there's this wooden train that was my only toy as a child. I mean, we were poor. And I've I've looked after all these years, thinking that my own kids would like to play with this toy train. And now the kids, I mean, they're not interested. I, I was going to keep hold of it for the grandkids. And Helen says, just get rid of it. And so I, I sold this thing, and Helen thought I mean, I'd rip someone off. I mean, four pounds I got for it. Uh, I'm thinking, that was the only toy I had as a child. I mean, it's sentimental value. It's worth much. As I was telling the story to the poor lady who was buying it, I, mean, I don't know what she thought of me, uh, but I mean, she kind of took it. And, I mean, we like to hoard stuff. I like to hoard stuff. We hoard stuff just in case we get sick just in case it comes into fashion again, just in case we have a child one day or our kids produce grandkids. We just keep hold of it for that. I mean, I've still got all of my school books from infant school, just in case one day my kids might want to have a look at them. Why would they want to look? They're all boxed up in the roof somewhere. We haul things just in case we move to a bigger house. Or maybe we're in a bigger house and the stuff just doesn't fit, but maybe we'll move to a smaller house again one day. So we hoard stuff, just in case, just in case, just in case. James says, I can't believe you have so many clothes that you never wear and so much money that it's beginning to corrode. I think what he's saying is, God is not happy with people who have more than they need and who hoard what they have and cling on to it for themselves, just in case. And then it gets down to business. He says, middle of verse 3, the corrosion, the corrosion of their money will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And all of a sudden, He starts weaving into this passage, just like he does throughout this whole book, really, the whole theme of coming judgment. He says, one day, you might not think about this right now, but one day the reality is you are going to stand before God. 
And this wealth that you're so proud of now is going to be some of the evidence that God will use against you because you've hoarded your wealth in the last days. It's as though it's evidence that you've become overcome with this sense of just in case, just in case, just in case. He says, it feels good. Maybe it looks pretty impressive right now. But there's a day that's coming when that attitude and that perspective on your wealth will be used against you. And that wealth that you are so proud of, you so craved, you so desired, will eat your flesh like fire. What he's referring to is the reality of judgment to come. And part of the basis of this judgment will be whether we've hoarded our wealth or used it in accordance with God's plans. James goes on, verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to... This verse, as a kid, this was one of the few verses I memorized. I quoted it to my dad regularly whenever I mowed the lawn. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Still never got more than that stupid wooden train. But anyway, he says, not only do you have more than you need, not only have you hoarded it, you are not even willing to pay an honest day's wage to the people who have helped you become wealthy. It's like you're not even generous with what you have. You're greedy. You have more than you need and you are unwilling to share it with others. And James says to all the rich people, whoever they may be, God is paying attention. And the cries of those who have suffered or have gone without because of your greed has reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty means the Lord of armies which is kind of a threatening picture, isn't it? That the cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of armies, and he has taken note. And one day, when you stand before God, and you will stand before God one day, he's going to bring up your wealth, your bank account, and your surplus cash, your wardrobe full of hardly worn clothes, and ask, what was all this for? And... And what was such a source of comfort to us in this life will end up becoming a source of embarrassment to us on the day of judgment. So James says to all the rich people, whoever they are, you need to be concerned. You need to be desperately concerned about your future. Yeah, you've planned for the future. Maybe you've thought ahead towards your pension and your retirement but you didn't plan far enough out. You didn't plan for eternity. James goes on, verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, that's probably not a picture that means a whole lot to us. I mean, scratching our heads, what's that all about? It's a wordplay that people back then would have got immediately. I'm trying to explain. When people back then were going to have a celebration, throw a party, what they'd do is they'd fatten up a calf. And when it was time for the celebration, when it was time for the party, 
they would kill the calf. And they'd have enough meat to serve with others, to share with others, their friends, their family, their neighbours, the whole community. And James says, you know what you've done? Instead of fattening a calf and slaughtering it for your celebration, you have fattened yourselves and effectively slaughtered other people. You've taken all this extra stuff you have and you've used it to make sure your lifestyle stays in line with your income. Or, that's what happens with most of us, just slightly ahead of our income. And as your income goes up, your lifestyle goes up. You've used it for yourself. It's like you've fattened yourself up even though there are people around you in need. But James doesn't stop there. As if that wasn't bad enough. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not even opposing you. He says, some of you rich people have gone so far, you've leveraged your wealth, you've used your wealth, and you've leveraged or used your position, so you've actually taken advantage of poor people. You've taken advantage of those who are innocent, and you've enriched yourself at their expense. And there's nothing they can do about it because they're poorer than you. There's nothing they can do because you're more powerful than them. Now, the word murder, which James uses here, probably is a figure of speech. Back then, if you're a landowner, someone owed you and couldn't pay, you could go and take whatever you wanted, their kids, their wife, their cattle, you could just take it all. And so, what they tended to do was enrich themselves even more at the expense of the poor. And James says... You did that to make your future more secure. But you know what? Your future isn't secure. The day is coming when those of you who have more than you need and you've just consumed it all on yourself, your wealth will become the source of pain and misery to you. It will lead to the very opposite of security for you. Aren't you glad you made the effort to come along this morning and hear this? I mean, highly encouraging stuff. It's like throughout this whole passage is this impending sense of doom. But do you know what the problem was with the audience James was writing to? I suggest the problem wasn't primarily that they were wealthy. I mean, God never condemns us for making a lot of money. I don't even think it was that they had a lot of stuff, had a lot of possessions. That wasn't the key issue here. Their problem is what oftentimes is our problems as well. They were oblivious the reason for God blessing them with so much in the first place. They never knew why they had been given more than they needed. And because they didn't know why they had more than they needed, they just assumed, as we often do, It was for themselves. And so they ended up hoarding it just in case. And they used it to support their aspirational lifestyle. So every time their income went up, their lifestyle went up. And as a result, they weren't as generous as they could have been. Now look, 
There isn't a person here today who would say that they are stingy. If I ask for a show of hands, as I did at the beginning for the rich people, and we've got one or two responses, if I ask for a show of hands of those who are really stingy here today, I don't think we'd even get one or two hands. I mean, you know, I pride myself in being incredibly mean. I mean, I am the most stingy person around. We don't say stuff like that. That's not something we show off about or boast about. Well, we like to think of ourselves as being pretty generous, really. But like us, the people that James was writing to back then weren't as generous as they could have been. And when they had an opportunity to just leverage their position to increase their standard of living, they certainly did that. I mean, they'd have been foolish not to, right? I'll tell you what. Any time we forget why we have more than we need, that tends to be the road we go down. When I forget why I have more than I need, I tend to end up concluding it's just for me. I mean, I tend to increase my lifestyle. I hoard it. I I, I enjoy spending it on myself. I'm always looking for opportunities to make more, even if, sadly, it's at someone else's expense. That's what happens when we forget why we have more than we need. This group that James is writing to, they lost sight or just never knew why God had given them more than they needed. So I want to ask that question to you today. Why is it that so many of us in this room right now in reality, have more than we need? It's a fair question. I'll tell you why. When you feel like you don't have all you need, I reckon you probably don't have many reservations about bringing that up with God, do you? Maybe you're out of work. Maybe you struggle to pay the bills. When there's something you've set your heart on, you feel you really need it, but you can't afford it. We plead with God to provide, don't we? Those are the times when we tend to pray the hardest. So let's just flip it. Let's turn it around. Why is it that you have more than you need? Because most of us do. Why is that? Let's just run through a few of the options. Maybe it's so you don't have to worry in life. Do you think that's why God has blessed you with so much? I mean... Is peace the fruit of a healthy bank balance? The Bible says, peace is the fruit of the Spirit of God inside you. But maybe in this one instance, the Bible's got it wrong. Maybe peace is actually the fruit of having more than we need. Is that why we have more than we need? Well, experience teaches that the more you have, the more you tend to worry. Because suddenly there's more at stake. There's more to try and sustain. The consequences are suddenly a whole lot bigger if you can't keep generating that level of income. And so the stress levels become huge. So I don't think that's it. I don't think God merely blesses us with so much so we don't have to worry. Must be something else. Must be another reason. Maybe is simply to enable us to keep increasing our standard of living. 
I mean, isn't it amazing that the moment our income goes up, all of a sudden we start realizing all those things we desperately need that we didn't realize we desperately needed before. Listen, we can always inflate our sense of need so it constantly keeps in line, or as what normally happens, just slightly ahead of our income. Now, do you think that's why God has blessed you with so much? So you can keep increasing the level of your lifestyle? I don't think so. I mean, where does that ever end? However much we have, we're never satisfied. We get that one thing we've set our heart on. If we get that, that'll be enough for me. A week later, month later, year later, there's always another thing. If we get that one thing, we'll, we'll, then we'll be satisfied. We never are. I don't know, maybe the real reason God's given us so much is so we can leave a sizable inheritance for our children. Maybe that's it. I'd love it to be that. My parents are getting older by the day. I'll love this to be the reason. Maybe God's ultimate plan is for you to better pass on significant wealth to your children so they can pass it on to their children so they can pass it on to their children. Maybe it's so we can leave a whole lot for our nearest and dearest. But the truth is, everyone leaves everything when they die. It's like you don't have to be committed to anything to leave it. Everybody leaves everything. And as I read the New Testament, I mean, you read it for yourself, no one seems to get any credit for leaving their money to someone. Because everyone leaves their money to someone. That's not a decision. That's just what happens when you die. I mean, even the most selfish, stingy, greedy person in the world leaves it all to someone else in the end. So what is the reason? Why do we have so much? Maybe it's just so we can retire early. Maybe instead of 65 or 70 or 85 or 90 or whatever it will be when we finally get to retirement age, maybe it's 55 or 60. Maybe it's so you don't have to work so much into old age. Maybe God's plan is for you to stop using all those gifts and talents he's given you. Maybe he doesn't want you to use those anymore. So he's given you more money than you need so you can quit working altogether. Maybe that's it. Listen, when we think that all our money and all our wealth and all our possessions are for our own personal benefit, we make plans accordingly. But that isn't God's plan for us. It's really not. You know why God has given you more than you need? It's really incredibly simple. It's a shame we even need to spend time talking about it today. It's so simple. I want to illustrate it like this. I want to imagine I take Nathan, my son, and his best friend from school and Nand down to the park for the day. And when it's time for lunch, Nathan pulls out his uh, packed lunch that uh, his mum, being a caring, loving mum, has made for him. He pulls out his lunch and he grabs a sandwich and he starts eating. Although it's the crust and it's brown bread and it doesn't have a whole lot in it, he eats it anyway and he's very happy. Now, Anand, his friend, he's feeling a bit peckish as well. So fortunately, his mum has made him a packed lunch as well. And so he opens it up and he also 
he has brown bread and a crust, not a whole lot in it, and he eats that gratefully as well. So both boys were eating their lunches. Nathan, the sandwich doesn't quite do it for him. He thinks, I'd like some crisps. And he's in luck, because his mum is feeling incredibly generous. So he, he devours the entire bag. Uh, it doesn't do a whole lot for his, his waistline, but he eats all of those, or his breath, actually. He eats all of those. And Anne reaches into his sandwich bag. Ah, it's his lucky day. He's got a big bag of crisps as well. He munches through those. Now, eating those, just feel it's a little unbalanced. And fortunately, uh, Nathan's mum thought to put an apple in. So he reaches in and has his apple and feels kind of, it's one of his five a day. He eats that nice and happily. And then he finishes crisps. He reaches in. What, what have I got? I've got an apple as well and a good catch. Do you see that? I mean, that's not easy. How's I practiced that, I tell you. Uh, so he eats his apple. Uh, what type of bit of a thirst, all this food? Nathan reaches into his bag. He finds his bottle of drink. He, he downs that in one. And Anand reaches into his sandwiches. He's got a, a, a bottle of drink as well. Downs it in one. Nathan just wants to finish it off with something else. Reaches in. And he's got a, a packet of four cookies that his mum has given him. A generous mum. And Anand reaches into his sandwich bag. And there's nothing there. Now... At that point, what am I going to say? Am I going to look at Nathan's friend and Nant and say, look, mate, bad luck. <laughs> Shame your mum's not as generous as Nathan's. I mean, live and learn. I can play when you get home, but <laughs> bad luck, mate. No. <laughs> no, no, no. What's the one word that's likely to come out of my mouth as I look at Nathan? Share. Share. I mean, isn't it obvious? If Nathan has got four and his friend has got none, I'm going to ask him to share what he's got so his friend doesn't go without. And if Nathan clings onto the bag for dear life and shouts at the top of his voice, but they're mine, I'm going to explain to him reasonably and logically that it's far better to be generous and provide for his friend. And you know what? As a parent, if I see Nathan volunteering willingly to give his friend a couple of his cookies without me even intervening, I'm not going to reprimand him. I'm not going to tell him to pull himself together. Look, that's my hard-earned money that bought those cookies. Eat them yourself, son. I, I, I want you to keep hold of them for yourself. By all means, sell some of them to your friends. I mean... If you can try and profit from the situation, I mean, make an entrepreneur of you, but don't even think about giving them away. How naive is that? No. No, no, no. As a parent, I'm thrilled that he's thinking of others. In fact, later on, I might take him to one side and let him know how proud I was of him. And our Father in heaven looks down on our bank accounts and our possessions and our just-in-case funds, and he must just pull his hair out. I mean, why do they think I gave them so much? I mean, it's blatantly obvious. Why do they think it's so they can spend more on themselves? 
or quit working earlier, or save it all up and pass it on to their kids? Why do they think it's so they won't have to worry because all their confidence and trust is in their money? Why can't they see the reason they have more than they need is because there are people who are in need? Here's what James is saying. The reason we have so much is penetratingly and convictingly clear. It's not because of our need. It's because of the needs of the people around us. It's not. So we can leave loads when we die. The Bible says we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven when in this life we have the option to use what we have, but instead choose to give it away. When we live our lives understanding that when I have more than I need, it's for the benefit of someone else in need. That's the message. That's the principle that James wants us to get here. That that's what it means to apply our faith when it comes to the whole area of our money and our possessions. Now look, if we're being honest, this is just a frustrating principle, isn't it? And here's why. You hear all of this, hopefully you're getting to the place where you believe it, but then what do you do? Do you give to everyone who comes along in need? Where do you alter your lifestyle? Where do you draw the line on this? Do you decide you're, you're only going to earn a certain amount and then give everything on top of that? Or do you look to downsize rather than upsize? I mean, it's all quite fuzzy. It's all ever so slightly blurred. How do you go about trying to apply a message like this? I want to give you a few suggestions. I want to give you some principles that as you grow financially will enable you to avoid falling into the trap of just using it all for yourself and one day ending up embarrassed before God when he asks you to give an account for all the wealth he entrusted to you. Not directly taken from this passage, more things that I've learned to do over the years that personally speaking I've found really helpful. Hopefully you'll find helpful too. There are three ways to give. First of all, percentage giving. Second, priority giving. And third, progressive giving. If you have more than you need, whether that is loads more or just a little bit more, whether you're aware that you have more than you need or just relative to what others have, you have more. Here's a way to ensure that you don't fall foul of this whole just-in-case syndrome. First thing is this, percentage giving. You may beg to differ on this, but in my own personal experience, I've found it's really helpful to pick a percentage of your income that you're going to give away. That's why back in the Old Testament, I guess, God instituted tithing. He knew that people needed some guidance on this. So he said, the first 10% of everything you have, just give it away. Now, as we turn to the New Testament, doesn't seem to stipulate that for us today we have to give 10%. But it's still a helpful benchmark. I know a lot of people who find the 10% mark is just a helpful guide. But that's all it is. It's a guide. 
If you haven't got faith for that, you pick a lower percentage. Or if you've got faith to give more, you do that. I mean, if in the Old Testament 10% was appropriate, how much more should we give today? In light of God's phenomenal generosity to us, giving his own son for us, aren't we going to look to be more generous too? So I want you to think about this. Maybe not now, maybe over the next few days. What does generosity look like for you? Not, what's the bare minimum I can get away with? But what percentage of everything you have is going to be generous? That's the place to begin. Start off by deciding on the percentage of your income that you're going to give away. And then second, you make that percentage the priority. That means when I get paid, first check I write or the first standing order that goes out of my account goes to the things I've decided to support financially. Why is that the first check? Why is that the first standing order? Here's why. Here's what I'm saying. God, you've blessed me with more than I need. And I want to make very sure that I give away the extras before I accidentally consume the whole bag myself. Because if you're anything like me, you can consume a whole lot. I mean, if I sit down to eat lunch and keep eating until I'm full and then give away whatever's left over, there's not going to be a whole lot left. If I wait until my appetite is fully satisfied, I'm never ever going to give a whole lot away. That's why when you've chosen the percentage you're going to give, that's the first check you write. That's the first standing order out of your account. So you pick a percentage. Then you make that the priority. Then thirdly, you look to give progressively. As God blesses you financially, as God blesses you with stuff, every year, why not make the decision that you will evaluate and you will bump up or increase the percentage of your giving. That's what I do. I look to increase the proportion of my giving year on year. And you know what? Although every time it feels like it hurts a lot, in the end, I don't actually miss it. Because God keeps providing me with whatever I need. So here's the challenge. Will you take the practical steps you need to take? Maybe it's those three things I've just suggested. Maybe it looks different for you. But will you take the practical steps you need to take to ensure that you don't consume all that you have on yourself and that you don't come to the end of your life and find that your wealth and your security, your possessions, becomes the source of embarrassment and pain for you? Now, just to make this even more practical as we draw to a close, and we will draw to a close in a moment, I just want to suggest three things I would really encourage you to give to. I want to spell this out as clearly as I can to try and help you apply this message. First of all, before I stood up to speak, I showed you that DVD about the work of New Frontiers. Next week, we'll be taking, as I said earlier, a special offering where you can give to help advance God's kingdom in all those different contexts around the world. And I want to encourage you this week to be praying about it, seeking God. What will he give you permission to give? What will he give you faith for to give next week to support the family of churches we're a part of? Second, 
We shared at the last news night a month or so back about the mission fund that we've just set up in the church. As a church, we're committed to reaching the nations here in this city and also sending people to serve God in other nations around the world. So earlier this year, you'll remember, we sent the Biggs family out to Zimbabwe. As we heard earlier, this is Rich's final Sunday with us before he moves off to the Middle East. Over the summer, Claire Rose is going to be moving out to Ghana. We'll be sending her. Over the next few years, there'll be many more people. Maybe some of you will be sending to the nations as well. Now, we want to be able to provide financial support to the people that we send. And giving into the mission fund is one way that will enable us to do that. I want to encourage you to be thinking, maybe it's on top of your monthly giving, to be thinking, maybe I could give something into that fund. Just write a check or speak with, uh, with, with Linda, who looks after the finances. You're earmarking some of that money for the mission fund. Maybe it's every now and again. You, you just recognize you've got more than, than you need. You just want to give a, a special one-off um, payment into the mission fund. Just flag that up so you're aware of it and can keep that in mind between you and God. But I don't want any of you feeling pressured or condemned into all of this. What I do want to ask you to do is prayerfully seek God and ask him what he would give you faith for in your giving. Principle's this. The reason God has blessed you with so much is so you can bless those around you who don't have so much. I've suggested three ways that might work its way out. You may want to disregard those and do something completely different. How you work this out is up to you. But I would urge you to give and to give generously. Let's pray together.